1: What is up on a Sunday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Writes podcast. We have Rebel Grove's own Chase Parham filling in for Weldon Rodenberg in the co-host chair. Weldon was at the Saints Seahawks game today, so I grabbed Chase to pinch it. We'll actually probably talk to Weldon in the midweek this week just to switch things up a little bit as he uh, watched a Saints win today. So Chase and I talked a lot about the Vanderbilt win uh, Ole Miss continuing to find different ways to win games, revisiting their ceiling, Jackson Darts' performance, and then uh, a couple other things about the unique opportunity Ole Miss has ahead of them over the you know next six or seven weeks or so as the West looks very gettable, and is, as gettable as it's been for probably at least half a decade, maybe longer than that. I'd have to think back through the years. So a lot of great stuff in there. And then we talked about his book uh, at the end, which you can get. It is called Resilient Rebels, Ole Miss baseball's remarkable path to a national title. You can get that on Amazon, coming to local bookstores around the state here soon. Talked a lot about that, the process of writing a book. I was interested in hearing his side of how this thing came together. So, a lot of great stuff in there. Great Sunday conversation. I think you'll enjoy it to kick off the work week. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you the podcast is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Ray Stevens. Ray is a real estate agent for Square Real Estate here in Oxford. He's licensed through the North Central Mississippi Realtors Association. That means whether you're buying, or selling, he can represent you whether you're looking for a two-bedroom condo or your five-bedroom house in Oxford. He can help make the process easy and as seamless as possible. Ray loves helping people find homes that they're going to cherish and enjoy maybe you're looking for a second uh or a second home weekend getaway place in oxford tired of paying for overpriced hotel rooms using a friend's room never been a better time to buy football team's awesome you're coming up here every weekend give ray a call he can help you find that or if you're trying to sell your place in oxford he can help you with that process too and get you the best possible deal all you have to do is give him a call at 601-624-4824 he provides individual service listens to your needs and makes the process easy and seamless. Home buying and selling can be super complicated. Ray makes sure it's not, and he's dependable, reliable, known the guy a long time, loves working with Ole Miss people, loves helping Ole Miss people, and enjoys being in and around Oxford. You need to check him out, 601-624-4824. That'll be cell phone number. He'll pick right up or catch him at his broker's number, 662-832-7777. That's a lot of sevens. Check him out, Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. Really happy, enjoyed the pot. He has joined the Rippy Wright's podcast family. I can't talk today, uh, but give him a call. Let him know we sent you and he'll hook you up. I promise. Check him out. Ray Stevens at Square Real Estate. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Fix. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling, handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism, This helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Maybe you're tired of losing money at college football and NFL football each week. Skybox can help change that for you. You don't want the man texting you on Sunday night, Monday morning, asking you to square up. You want to be texting him asking where your supplementary income is coming from last night. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. You can try it for a month, season long. Try it for six weeks, try it for a week, try it for a day. Doesn't matter. Skybox Sports Picks is going to help lead you to profit more consistently than your own brain. They sign up for a Picks package, use the promo code RIPPY, you get 20% off. Comes in a nice little emailed spreadsheet. Boom, you're instantly more professional and better suited to make money than you are 10 minutes before signing up. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here's Chase Parham on writing a book. Oh, and old Mrs. Wynn over Vanderbilt as well. All right, filling in for Weldon Rodenberg, who is, I think, watching a Saints victory. It looks like as we record this, the New Orleans Saints just capped off a 39-32 win over the Seattle Seahawks. That game got a little weird. Um, Chase Parham in the co-host seat. We're here to talk fall scrimmages, um, you know, B-War, all that good stuff. No, we're here to talk Ole Miss is there at the halfway point in the season. You are now a published author. I think you were in the process of becoming one the last time we did a podcast together, is it a weight lifted off your shoulders? We'll get to the book stuff at the end, but i had to just ask you off the top, are you less busy now? What's up?
2: Uh, marketing it and hoping to God people buy it. It's still a, a okay. process that takes up some time. I've become pretty obsessed with analytics and things online. It is getting in bookstores this week. I am staring at, about 245 copies on my desk in front of me right now to, to sign and send different places. It, it's just a different level, level of overwhelming. But yeah, the, 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 the writing process is much more stressful, much more tiring. I tell you what is, what is annoying. And I have made two different edits and I hope we have found 99.99% of them. But no matter how many times you look at it, you're still gonna find one more typo. I mean, it's 60, it's 68,000 words. There's going to be a typo or two somewhere in this process. And I am found, I have found multiple times, either something was left out or there is a typo and it drives me insane. And we have to go in and get, so I guess point is, if you bought them really early, I appreciate you, but you you have a copy that is a little different than now because we have fixed some errors a couple of times over the last two weeks. And look, you're never going to get them all. I mean, it's, it's what, what jeff robertson told me is some advice he said that you know because i i really wanted i wish i would had two more months with the book i could have fleshed some stuff out it would have been a different book a little bit i could have added some things i'm happy with it i'm proud of it but you're always something you want to change And he goes chase while that's true had you had five more years you still would have wanted one more month with the book at some point you just you just kick it out of the nest and hope that it flies
1: yeah, no, I, I, that makes sense. I mean, even in just like writing articles and stuff, people don't understand. Like, even with editors, and that's probably one of the lost values of newspapers is having the copy editor and all the different eyeballs look at it. Because I remember once I got out on my own and like I didn't really have like an editor oil process. And I was like, Jesus, I'm not gonna catch. Like, I could read it nine times and you're never gonna catch it. It's just human nature. I don't know how we haven't come up with robots that can spot typos yet. I get you got the predictive text, whatever. But just I don't understand how there's no programming system that would just scan it and automatically catch everything. I wish some nerd would invent that because it would make things a hell of a lot well, easier. And they'd probably get rich off of it.
2: One of the things here that has been the frustration, and is the last edit I made on the, on the final one, hopefully, that, that we'll do to update it, is that there was to- two times where it should have been that, and I wrote the. Well, nothing can catch that. You've just got to stumble on That's that right. and catch that you had a mistake. So there's multiple times where, I mean, you're writing so much, you're just prone to those kind of errors and you make a good point. And people who even wrote term papers in high school will understand this to some extent, but writers and journalists will get it more. So there's some sort of cloudiness that happens. If you wrote the words that you can stare at it over and over and over again and not see an obvious thing. And then anybody else looks at it and goes, Oh, what'd you do right there? There's a mistake, but I can read that damn thing 12 times and I'll never pick up on a
1: couple of those errors that are right in front of my face but then that person misses a couple that person misses mm-hmm. two more and for whatever reason it just seems almost nearly impossible to ever catch everything it's uh it's pretty impressive the places that are able to do that and I guess that just takes you know full time I've like I've listened to a podcast about a book that guy that uh, wrote a guy wrote a book that um on the dude that started Silk Road crazy story that undercover oh. website but he had like Fact checkers and researchers spend almost another calendar year pouring through what they had written. I imagine that would be close as you can possibly get, but obviously that's a whole different level of like capital time. Obviously, as you outline, you weren't afforded it. I want to get to some book stuff at the end, but let's knock out some football first. Ole Miss gets to six and zero on the season with a pretty emphatic second half performance yesterday um, against Vanderbilt. We talked a little bit about this on the post game show, and I don't want to be like too repetitive. But you mentioned that you took more positives than negatives away from yesterday. And I think that is the case because, you know, even to look at Alabama A&M last night, every team in the country is flawed to some degree. I, I think we thought Georgia and Ohio State were probably pretty close. And now Georgia doesn't look like they're exactly perfect either. And so, you know, Ole Miss' flaws aside, their ability to come out in the second half, put their foot down and impose their will on that game, was pretty impressive because I think that's the DNA of what good teams do, right? I mean, yes, they had issues, you know, getting run on in the first half. They kind of screwed around offensively in the first half as Lane Kiffin put it, but then they just flipped a switch. And there's been a ton of good to decent old Miss teams in the past that just haven't been able to do that. When Vanderbilt went up 10 points yesterday, how many times have you seen that movie, whether it's Vanderbilt or another opponent inferior, or equal in competition to where that game just gets completely weird from you know that point to the end of the game and Ole Miss really by the midway through the third quarter that result was not really in doubt
2: you know that's what I told you yesterday was I think I called it emotional stability or something like that but yeah. I, the, the more fact to it is college football is a really dumb game right now because every week every quarter Lane keeps trying to tell us this over and over and over again is that every quarter frankly is independent of others and whether it be matchups or emotion or whatever we're talking about, things can just spiral in a thousand different ways. The teams that are good have a talent base that is good enough to beat most teams. Ole Miss is in that group. They're ranked number nine in the country as polls have updated here on Sunday, but where the, where teams separate is that they find ways to win when either the other team is playing out of its mind above its, above its stability factor and in their, in their all their emotions or when they're just kind of going through the motions of their own team and they find a way to still pull it off. And that's what you're seeing. That's what Ole Miss did yesterday. Yeah, you've seen a thousand times. Whether, Frankly, Ole Miss and Vanderbilt. I mean, Vanderbilt had won – I hope I get the stat right. I think they had won eight of the last 20 times against Ole Miss going into Saturday something like that. And Ole Miss is a program that in the past did not have the overall talent, didn't have the belief. And didn't have the ability to kind of overcome the bad days and win games. That's how you end up six and six, seven and five or worse, or whatever. Lane has changed that. This coaching staff has changed that. And one of the ways is that they can still dig out the hole. Because one thing Lane Kiffin has done really well since he's been here is beat the teams he's supposed to beat. They don't lose a lot of the the games where they have more talent and more to win more to gain by the by, by the by the outcome, and they screw it up. And you saw that on Saturday. You know, look, they're human. He told them all week, you got to show up, Vanderbilt's better, they're going to be ready for you, they're going to have it circled, it's homecoming, all that blah, blah stuff. But DeAndre Prince admitted it in the post game. They looked and they saw Vanderbilt, the team that had lost 22 straight SEC games, and went, eh, it'd be all right. And then you look up and A.J. Swan's pretty good. The Shepard kid's pretty good. Ray Davis is pretty good. And Vanderbilt popped them. They dominated the line of scrimmage. They out-efforted Old Miss for the first half. But – the moment that was so critical was that score at the end of the half, because that was the stabilizing thing where Vanderbilt had dominated the first half, and you look up and they're only up three. And you know when they walked into the the the, the locker room, that was this big neon sign of, "Yeah, guys, this ain't happening today." They closed it up. It's going to be a problem. And as soon as the third quarter happened, it was just a it was a spiral effect and an onslaught. Ole Miss outscored from twenty-one to nothing in the third quarter. They uh, run off a bunch of points in a row after that. They outscore them 42 to eight overall, I guess, from that point. And they imposed their talent gap and an effort gap. You know, they made a lot of they made a lot of changes defensively. They go to a four-man front, even a five-man front at times. They do the things required to sort of beat what Vanderbilt had schemed. Clark Lee's staff did a good job. They had a bye week prepare and they hit Ole Miss in the first half with things that were unexpected. And it took a little while for Ole Miss to counter. But you look around the country and teams in those kind of situations have lost over and over and over again this season. Games they shouldn't have lost, games where they get popped in the mouth and can't overcome it and can't figure it out. And that's why I thought there were more positives and negatives yesterday. Is I just thought that they gutted one out, end up covering, end up kind of dominating, keeping some swagger. But at the same time, you get to learn from some mistakes to me with what's coming up as long as they avoided injuries to any great extent, and I still don't have any updates on anybody as of 3.30 as we're recording this, if you avoided anything catastrophic from an injury standpoint or things that are manageable, you got to go into the film room, get yelled at, fix some things, but also show the other side of it, how you made adjustments. You've got to win. You're in a good place. They're going to take all the confidence into Auburn next week, but it's not going to be like had they won 60 to nothing and they're just riding high and laughing off everything. No, there was enough positive Vanderbilt stuff for Lane and Partridge and Weiss to get their attention this week and go, hey, look, if Vanderbilt did that, Auburn can do it too, guys. They can pop you in the mouth, and maybe this time you don't overcome it. So get there, get ready, and let's go. Because, look, no team in the country can get up emotionally 12 times. Sometimes you just got to gut out a win, and that's what they did yesterday.
1: Yeah, I think that's well said on a lot of fronts. And the Vanderbilt piece of it I think is probably pretty – reflective of what we're talking about there's been a ton of years where that game has been a thorn in Ole Miss's side you may not even remember this but I think it was after the 2016 loss Shea Patterson's second start at the end of that freeze debacle they lost that game up there I think you wrote something to the effect of like Vanderbilt offers kind of Ole Miss a mirror of where its programs at when oh. they're good they beat them I remember as a student I was like damn that's well said I should have stolen that. Um but I, it made me think about that rivalry matchup, whatever you want to call it differently, because they have. And yesterday getting down 10 points that I was like, Oh man, is this going to get strange? Is this going to get sideways again? Because both of the things that you said happened yesterday, I think Ole Miss probably came out a little lethargic. I didn't think they completely just like rolled the balls and the equipment out there and showed up, thought they were going to win. I thought they played a little sloppy. And then I thought Vanderbilt played really, really well in the first half. As you mentioned, they had a bye week to prepare. Swan's a pretty good quarterback. I imagine you know, I don't know where he came from, but I imagine if he has eligibility left, um, you know he's going to get some suitors in the portal. They have a good running back. I thought they executed pretty well. And Ole Miss didn't really blink. They just kind of got down 10 and it was like, all right, you got to flip the switch here and just kept going about their business. Now, the massive explosive plays helped. You got to give them some credit for the scheme of that. But Vanderbilt's lapses also contributed to that because, to be honest, we haven't seen Ole Miss being able to consistently put together long – but like continuous drives and score, you know, 25 to 30 points a game against a defense with the pulse where they have an eight to 10 play drive, you know, three out of four drives or four out of six or something like that, that helped, but you do have to give them credit. And like you said, they're going to get to walk into a film room and talk about all the bad that they did, you know, after a 24 point win or whatever it was. No, I guess that's yeah. 24 point win Mm -hmm. as opposed to one, a loss or two escaping by the skin of your teeth. And I think that's important. And with the way the schedule shook out and the lack of real competition Ole Miss has had to play, I think that probably helped them a little bit, right? They had they had a battle last week. That was their first real kind of get your uh, – I saw Nick Broker in the Grove actor, and he just kept saying that was football. Like, that was just hard-nosed football. Like, that was kind of a slobber knocker <laughs> of a game last week. They haven't had been tested on like that on the road. And, you know, quote, unquote, on the road, I was more worried if Vanderbilt was going to have to use the silent count with the crowd mm-hmm. in the election. But still – It would have been different, I think, if that stadium was more full and it was a different environment. But just the fact that you got down on the road, not in your own building, and had to climb back a little bit, that probably in some ways, even though that's not the way they drew it up or what they would have wanted, helped them as opposed to, like you mentioned, beating them 60-something to nothing again and them just kind of walking in and continuing their business into Auburn. Because I don't think Auburn is going to offer a ton of fight against them. Look, Auburn's capable. They're okay defensively but they're going to enter like the third or fourth week of October going down to Baton Rouge, really not having been tested a whole hell of a lot outside of game and the first half of this game. And that's a weird place to be. And so I think there could be some good from the struggles yesterday. It would be, I mean, we revisit this every week on the Sunday podcast. We kind of do the whole dart. What did you think? What are you change? Like, did it change anything? And it was really the prototypical dart kind of, circus is the wrong word I guess roller coaster ride a lot of ups and downs throughout the game I mean he ends up throwing for a bajillion yards but just like all the other times where I didn't think the box score that was pedestrian told the whole story I don't think dart being 25 of 32 for 448 yards exactly paints an accurate picture either this time it was just in the opposite direction I thought he did some really good things and then of course made two I say two really terrible decisions because there was one that wasn't picked. I'm not even necessarily sure what to think or what to count about the second pick. We covered that in the uh, post-game show last night, that you know that Buchanan theory about he got killed the play before, two plays before. Was he a little woozy because that throw looked weird? But he did have two to three terrible decisions. Not all in them reserved to, in turnovers. And it kind of cracks me up. Lane talks in a similar manner about Dart when it comes to bad decisions, as he does like juice pissing on his carpet. He's literally just like, yeah. I mean, after the Georgia tech, when he goes, we told him not to, and he did it again. <laughs> and like, he said something yesterday about that. And the same thing he said three or four times this year, he's mm-hmm. literally been like a disappointed like dog owner was like, yeah, <laughs> we, we told him that doesn't work and he still did it. Like, it just cracks me up. He's so annoyed by it, but don't you think to some effect, this is just kind of life with 19 year old Jackson Dart. You get a lot of the good, you get a lot of the leadership. He's very talented. But I just don't really see a world in these last seven games where he just mitigates those two cringeworthy throws decisions. Ole Miss is just going to have to cross their fingers and pray. One, they get dropped or two, the interception doesn't come at a backbreaking time in the game. And that's what I'm fascinated to see part of the, in this stretch going forward is when that happens, does it eventually cost them a game? Cause I tend to believe it will, but there's still a lot more good than bad. It's just, I don't believe that's something that will be solved this year as he continues to work through his first full season of college football. It just seems too ingrained in his DNA to pull out right now.
2: A couple things there. on oh, Something you said at the first part of how you look at it, and they're going to go to Baton Rouge. It's going to be week eight before they play a real home game, I maybe mean, a road game, yeah. because Georgia Tech – Lane tried to do the, hey, it's on the road, and it's this, but there was a lot of old Miss people in Atlanta that day. Georgia Tech was a vagabond program that was firing their coach in a week or two at that point. And then Vanderbilt, kind of the same thing. You go, hey, conference road game. Uh, there was more red and blue there than there was black and gold, even on homecoming. They, they, they're going to go to Baton Rouge not even having to have thought about a silent count or anything that would be difficult just from a road environment standpoint, which is – It's a little problematic. You would like them to have handled something prior to that. But I do think it's legitimate. I get it was Vanderbilt, and then once the ball started rolling downhill, it really got going. But what you said, Kentucky, sure, it was 60 minutes. Kentucky had the ball, either a penalty not thrown from losing or Kentucky trying to score in the last minute of the game to win the game. But Kentucky never led. Ole Miss led throughout. Ole Miss – was not behind on the scoreboard. Where they should have gotten some maturation yesterday was the fact that it's the first time during a game they had to chase an opponent back. Vanderbilt had a two-touchdown lead and maybe even a two-touchdown lead with the ball at one point. And you had to fight through that. You had to sort of pick yourself up. Forget road, home, anything. There's a learning process to that. And I think where Lane's probably the most happy about that game yesterday is I get they had the t- – the, the interception down there is the one dispute to this because that would have been a dagger at the moment on the throw that you just mentioned. Yeah. But they put Vanderbilt away. They didn't let them hang around. They didn't make the critical error that led into a Vanderbilt touchdown because at some point – I think I mentioned this with Deal on the postgame show – the Pythagorean probability is going to get you. And you look at Ole Miss's last two seasons and, and coin flip games, they're 3-0. and oh. Their last three games that are coin flips, they won all of them. Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky. And at some point, that ball is going to bounce the other way. And that just is what it is. You're going to lose a game somewhere when you play a lot of close games. It, it, it just is. But what you can do is don't turn a game you should win by 14 points into a coin flip. When you have a chance to put a team away, put them away. When you have a chance to make a turnover, get the turnover. That's how you go on big streaks. Frankly, a lot like Ole Miss is right now at 17-3 and in their last 20 games, is you take out the opportunities for a bunch of coin flips. If Alabama had played a bunch of games like last night or on Saturday night when Texas A&M has one play from the three-yard line or wherever it was to win the game, well, that team's going to score some. Alabama's going to lose football games. Alabama wins a lot of football games because they don't play a lot of close football games. So you do the things necessary to sort of extend and get away from that. And I think that's kind of what Lane keeps saying under his breath a little bit is, yeah, he's not thinking about national titles or anything other than, hey, this week, put the game away. Play as you need to play. Don't play all with emotion because, you know, emotion is great in the first quarter of games. Emotion can carry you through games. Here's the problem is it's not just positive emotion. Emotion can be negative too. And when emotion is is, is a negative on the other side, you play a little worse. You play quick and you're in a hurry and things turn sort of bad. So, you know, this is still all Lane trying to build culture. I feel like reason culture is such a buzzword these days. But But it's building, yeah, building an attitude through your program that permeates everybody into understanding what is expected and how to go about the the, the day-to-day mentality of achieving that. And, you know, that's what DART's doing right now. I mean, to get to the second part of what you said is, it's 100% Jackson Dart at 19 years old. It's almost every quarterback at 19 years old. Look, Dart's further along than Matt Corral was at 19. He's, he's a better quarterback than Corral was in 2019 at this point. Um, so, no, it's, it's – is, is it going to cost Ole Miss a game at some point? Very possible. Very, very, very possible. But if you're just expecting him to be perfect and not make those kind of decisions, then you're you're, you're asking for too much. I mean – Frankly, it's too much of any quarterback. I mean, Matt Corral made a horrific interception against Auburn last year that played into that game. I mean, you know, there, there was going to be mistakes. You started be the Sugar Bowl with
1: one, too. Remember that? I was like, what, what are you doing?
2: Oh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's just that's just quarterback play. Um, what you need from Dart, and it's what you've got in the second half, and this is somewhat of, I think, Ole Miss – Finally started operating its offense with the rhythm the rhythm that we expect from an Ole Miss offense. They start hitting the crossing patterns. They start getting the slot more involved. They start throwing the ball, not even deep, but intermediate down the field. It, it looked like what you think it's supposed to look like. And then at the same time, once they got ahead, they let Vanderbilt throw up on itself. And Vanderbilt's going to do that because they're still not a very good football team all the way around. Vanderbilt's used to losing. They don't know how to win yet because they have still haven't been an SEC team. Beating the heck out of Hawaii and Elon, and whoever else, Northern Illinois or whatever, is not finding a way through an SEC game. Muscle memory kicked in for Vanderbilt a little bit where once Ole Miss got ahead, Vanderbilt goes, oh, well, this is what happens in SEC games and you move on with your day and Ole Miss routes on and scores and all that stuff. It's it's why Clark Lee went for the two-point conversion. It's yeah. why he did the onside kick because he's, he's begging his guys to, hey, we're going to play 60 minutes and we're going to do this, this, and this. And then I think in some ways that's what, you know, as we said last night, that's what got seven more put on him because Lane probably would have stopped had he not done that.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. And that that, uh, that certainly uh, fired up the people out there as we had the all-MIS cover there at the end, the prep running back to the J quarterback. I will
2: say this. It was not a criticism of Matt Jones. I am very glad that a, a, a down-the-line running back got a chance to score. That is a lifetime achievement. That's awesome. There are no problems with that. I had a tweet about how Lane must have known the number because he covered on that yesterday. And somehow that turned into lots of comments toward me that I was dogging Matt Jones. I have no problem with hey, Matt Grant. Jones. Yeah, good. I, I don't know. I'm just telling you, I had no issue with Matt Jones. I, that was a really cool moment for him. It was just an oddity that Lane was running a play right there is all I'm saying.
1: Yes, it very much was an oddity. I got to be completely honest. I think I'm pretty tuned into the MIS ranks. I didn't know who Matt Jones was. I knew they had Ken K. Dennon in the game. My eyes were locked in on him. And I was like, who is this kid standing next to him? And boom, prep. uh, The (laughs) roster says he went to prep. But that was also like, Lane, it looked like they just, he and Clark Lee discussed that a little bit after the game. It didn't look like, you know, any animosity or something. They just looked like, hey, you know, this is why this happened. It was also a little bit of bad luck or weird luck. They had two plays that resulted in them going out of bounds to where Mingo didn't necessarily go out of bounds on purpose. He just kind of went out of bounds. Judkins ran out of bounds. Like he forgot what the situation was type of thing. And that led to it. Like, yes, they did have to snap the ball one more time. Yes, they could have kneeled it. But at that point, like to, I guess to your kind of point is like, I don't know, why not let the walk on kid run it in, like, run it in one more time. What does it matter? They just onside kick. So like, I think he knew the number you'd be lying. You know, most coaches do, whether they want to admit it or not, um, I mean, Hugh Freeze was almost, like, open about it from what I heard sometimes. Like, he – now, granted, there's another level of narcissism there, but whatever. I, I just – I think there was probably a little mix of both. There was a funny moment at the end of that game. You talk about the culture aspect of it, too. It is a word we use a lot, but it's it's applicable because there's so many different levels to it. They're starting to expect to win these games. And then another piece that I don't feel like gets talked about a ton, and I know Ole Miss fans know that they have good coaches, but I don't think the – I think an underrated aspect of – what Lane has done over the last two months or excuse me, two years, two plus years is the fact that how many times have they gone into a game where you've thought, what the hell are they doing on offense? Or why are they trying this on defense? Like this doesn't make any sense. Remember the Longo ball of what the hell are they doing in the red zone? Can we get a bubble screen? Like what, what, what is this get open route they keep referring to? There's not a whole lot of that Ole Miss struggled a lot defensively in 2020 and for about four or five games in 2021. But ever since then, like you haven't had a whole lot of game plan questioning, even amongst like the fan base, which, you know, fans are supposed to be irrational. They're supposed to be pissed about, you know, innocuous things and act like they know more than coaches. I don't feel like you've gotten a lot of that sentiment because Ole Miss is such a well run operation and how they're prepared for games. And I think that's rare because Freeze it called tons of good games. He also had games where it's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, the Memphis in 15, terrible. Arkansas in that 15 for second half, terrible. Alabama 14 awesome Alabama 15 awesome you get the point but like Ole Miss I don't feel like it's had a ton of that can you remember a game in Kiffin's tenure where it's like hey what what are are we doing here like strategy wise? even just like an untrained eye I think that's an underrated aspect of it I just think they they have a lot of people in the room that know what they're doing and know how to put these guys in positions to win games because as improved as they are uh, defensively particularly talent-wise they're still not like a juggernaut of talent in depth. Like they'd love to have what no. they do. But they just get put in great positions. Last year with the 3-2-6 was a great example of that. And I think that's an underrated aspect of this rebuild or build, whatever you want to call it. The closest
2: game to a problem would have been Arkansas when Matt threw all the picks. Just yeah. because they, they couldn't teach him in the middle of the game how to recognize the drop eight and what to do with it. So he was just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. But that's not – lack of preparation in a lot of ways. That was just Barry Odom putting in a really good game plan and using that, and the kind of momentum took off, and it went from there. It, it's a couple different elements to that. This Ole Miss defense is better coached than any Ole Miss defense I remember, depending on how you want to categorize that 2014 team that led the country in scoring defense, and it was very talented and very good, and, you know, I, I don't know how to quantify the difference between those two however they're always in the right place now they have not tackled well at times but that's not coaching you, you get them in place and they've got to make the tackles they've got to swarm to the football they're very well coached offensively they have good game plans and they seem to adjust pretty well I know they've struggled in fourth quarters this season prior to Saturday but both sides of the ball Vanderbilt gave them things they did not expect or didn't know how to handle and they figured it out on the fly and then got going and then the other thing too is there's no angst you know in former staffs the fan base was mad about something you had either the end of the freeze era that was bad in 16 or you felt like you gave games away like against Memphis and when you look at the Memphis game in 15 they lose you've got Camdiche in the backfield playing fullback and you've got Treadwell throwing passes and you've got I mean, even in the Alabama thing, you've got Liggins taking a snap there on the most critical series of the game down toward the goal line. Lane is not one for being cute. I mean, it's very Um, rare that you have to go, hey, he's – no, the goal is to put the ball in the hands of the best players and see what happens at that point. Every snap that goes to somebody else is is a lost snap. So, between just common sense play calling and them winning. I mean, Ole Miss, it's what I said last night. Because there was some conversation back and forth of, hey, don't look ahead, don't look ahead. And again, look, I mean, fans don't play. So that's whatever. I mean, you can look ahead all you want to as a fan base. But there is something to just kind of enjoying this ride. It's 17 and three. That hasn't happened since Johnny Vault was the head coach. 17 and three. So when you do that, show up, enjoy the wins, enjoy all the wins. And then, two, recognize and appreciate, but also recognize that it's been a while since you've gotten to the park or the stadium every single week and expect to win the football game. You you know, you still in the past. Yeah, you know, because in the past, look, I've said on the podcast, people got mad at me, and I understand now because Lane has moved them ahead of this. But in a lot of ways, Ole Miss always wanted a coaching staff that let them go to the Grove and go to the stadium going, hey, we got a puncher's chance today. We've got a shot most weekends. You know, you're looking for that seventh win, that eighth win to try to get to the Gator Bowl or whatever. And this kind of dovetails into the fact that nobody's even talking about the bowl eligibility, as we mentioned last night on the on the, on the postgame show, is that the expectations have changed so much. It's not, hey, we have a chance. It's no, I'm going to be pissed if we don't win. We're just supposed to win today. I mean, because frankly, if it's not on, on this year's schedule, you look at it right now. I mean, I get Alabama's banged up, and maybe Ole Miss has a chance. Maybe they beat Alabama. Maybe they don't. That's not the point. But outside of Alabama, Ole Miss fans are going to show up at the stadium all other 11 times, not just, hey, maybe today goes well, but expecting to win the football game. You run through the rest of the schedule, they're not going to go into the Egg Bowl going, up. nope, State's going to get us today. I hope we have a chance to get that one. They're not going to go to Baton Rouge and go, oh, we're outmanned. We're in trouble tonight. They're going to do the same thing in College Station. It is – it's fairly remarkable how quick the shift has occurred for Ole Miss.
1: And some of it has played into their hands, right, with Auburn down, LSU down, Arkansas looking like they're just kind of a broken team emotionally. And that will just get right into it. I've tried to avoid this conversation in the month of September, even though it was kind of always on the back burner and I think on the back of everyone's mind. But, look, we're now going to enter the third week of October here in this coming week. Ole Miss has now played half of its games. Can this team win the West? Uh, Yeah. I think the short answer is yes, but I know there's a million different elements to dive into, but what is yours? There's two ways to win the West. Last night was a –
2: or Saturday night was a major harm to one of those because when I'm watching that A&M Alabama game, what I'm doing in my head is actually thinking about Ole Miss the whole time because I thought, hey, hang on a minute. If A&M could beat Alabama tonight and then Tennessee got them next week with Bryce Young still out, Ole Miss wouldn't even have to beat them; they could lose to Alabama, win the rest of their games, and still win the West. Like there was a path there that they could kind of do what Alabama's done to them a couple times, where you lose the one game but still figure it out the rest of the way. And I don't think that's still out of the realm. I mean, if you told me, look, it's not going to be easy, but if you told me Alabama lost two games, okay. I mean, maybe. I mean, it's. I mean, if, if until Bryce Young is back. That's at least in the cards, but the other side of it is go beat Alabama at home on November the 12th. I mean, it's Alabama will be favored in the game. Alabama will probably be supposed to win the game, but they're much more fallible than they've been some other years. You look at them, and Jameer Gibbs is a little banged up. He's really, really damn good. Bryce Young is obviously exceptional when he's healthy, but they've had some offensive line issues. They've got some defensive issues in some spots. They just haven't blown guys out. They've had a hard time putting four quarters together. They're doing the same thing everybody else in college football was doing. So if you're Ole Miss, you just hang in the game, do sort of your style and hope in the second half you're playing at home and you turn it into almost kind of like the last five minutes of a basketball game and you try to go win it. So can Ole Miss win the West? Sure. Can they go – you know, look, undefeated is such a tall order. I hate to go to the 12-0 thing, but if you told me – the ceiling was 11-1 and with they win over Alabama? Okay. I mean, I, there's no reason not to think that. I mean, because I, I think – Neil and I were talking about this quickly. Eight and four is a disappointment at this point. I think nine and three is a baseline with the ability to be better than that. But if this team goes 10-2, and two, nobody's shocked.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, I can't argue with that at all. And the the piece of it that's interesting to me – is what's the last time you really thought they had a chance to win the West? 15? It was 15. Yeah, because, I mean, you're all they had to do was one out. Right. They and had beaten
2: Alabama. They just had to beat Arkansas, LSU, and Mississippi State.
1: Yeah, exactly. But, like, remember that Arkansas team wasn't great, but they felt, like, pretty capable. And I get that that game got weird. And that was probably – I mean, I hate to bring up bad rem- memories and rub salt in the wound, but their best shot. That was an LSU team that was okay that day. Granted, it was coming to Oxford. That was probably their best shot. But I guess my point in that was – they beat 14 Alabama. and 15 back and back to you know, back Because in 14,
2: that was the last time they were 6-0 in a right. season. They, they, they beat Alabama. They went to College Station and beat the hell out of Texas A&M. And then came back home and beat the hell out of Tennessee. And they yeah. went to Baton Rouge with it right there on the rack.
1: And that's what I'm kind of getting at. So they beat Alabama, like, what, the third week of the year in 15. And it's like, I right, well, they still have to go to Florida. That could get weird. They have A&M and Auburn. And uh, A&M, Auburn, and Arkansas, back-to-back-to-back, to back to back bi-week, LSU, and State, that was like, you know, I think they probably could get through that if they beat A&M and uh, Auburn, and they did do that, even after the Florida loss, and then, of course, the Arkansas game speaks for itself, but that just felt like, man, that's a tall, tall order, 14 even worse, they get to, what, 7-0 and after beating Kentucky, right, or excuse me, beating Tennessee, Tennessee. And it's like, damn, now they have to play a pretty damn good LSU team in Baton Rouge at an 8 p.m. kickoff and then come back. They lose that game 10 to 7. And it's like, all right, there's, remember they were still fourth in the college football playoff rankings. Well, they had to play an Auburn team with Nick Marshall that was really capable offensively. They still had to go to Arkansas and then beat State at home. It's like that felt like a much bigger gauntlet to where you now look down this schedule. And if they get to 7-0 and 0 next week, yes, they do have to go to Baton Rouge. But is not really a good football team. Um, yes, they still have to go to a and M. A and m talented defensively, maybe they figured a little bit of something out offensively, you know, letting Haynes King throw it a little bit down the field more. I still didn't think they were great, but that doesn't feel the same as having to go to LSU in 14. And then, you know, going to, I don't know what Arkansas will be the second half of the year. I think that could be still their second hardest game. Maybe Mississippi State. I, I, State looks pretty good, but you get my point. Like, Maybe that gets in there, but I guess my overall point here as I go through it, it doesn't feel like as tall of an order or as big of just a physical gauntlet week after week as it's felt like when it did in 2014 to 15, because frankly, the West was just better than it is currently. One through Ole seven.
2: Miss is going to be favored or a coin flip against everyone but Alabama the rest of the way. Yeah. And I don't think the Alabama line is going to be anything crazy. They're not going to be some 19-point underdog or something when Alabama six, seven, comes to in town. Maybe, yeah, sure. I mean, something like that is probably real. Um, maybe even – I mean, if, if Ole Miss is undefeated, It'll I guess a lot of games time. to go, we might even be tighter than that. Um, no, the problem with this year is not even necessarily the gauntlet, even though there's some, a lot of tough games. I mean, Arkansas locked in in Fayetteville in late November with KJ Jefferson healthy will be a very hard game.
1: That would be Mississippi. Jackson Clark's biggest litmus test, Wanted against a bad Arkansas secondary. Can you go win a yeah. game for them without imploding?
2: You know, Mississippi State has played really well. They're a good football team. They've lost the Ole Miss, you know, multiple in a row now. They feel like they need this thing to not really, really lose a lot of momentum in the state. Because, you know, state's in danger if, when you look at them. And, like, maybe they're trying to keep tunnel vision, and that's not the way. All you, all you can do every day is improve your program. That's all you can do. You can't ha- handle what anybody else is doing. Well, don't tell but, them that. Well, true. But my point is, states in danger here. If say, say they lose to Ole Miss and they don't get one of the two huge upsets, that's a really, really, really good football team that would be going eight and four. And if Ole Miss stays on this current trajectory, it would place Mississippi State at eight and four into a complete afterthought inside the state of Mississippi from a national perspective because Ole Miss would be 10-2 and two or 11-1 and one or whatever they would be, and it's Lane Kiffin and it's flashy and it's Access Bowl for the second year in a row and the fourth year out of the last eight or seven or whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot of years where eight and four would be absolutely the cock of the walk in Mississippi, and Ole Miss is preventing that from being the case. State desperately needs the Egg Bowl, but State's not at a point where they can expect to win the Egg Bowl.
1: We'll get back to chase parm in just a second before we want to take a quick break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by lb's university avenue there in oxford go see greg for rippy rights subscriber that's rippy get a free newsletter for me a couple of times a week and discounted meats right now it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage just go show him you subscribe and then, boom, he'll get you set up. Go find your own favorites. Oxford's so lucky to have a place like LB's. It is truly the greatest butcher shop in the world. Weather's cooling down. It was insanely good grilling weather this weekend. Hopefully, you stopped by LB's, threw something delicious on the grill, whether it was the filet burgers, all kinds of different cuts. I like the tri-tips, all kinds of delicious sausages. He's got seafood and enjoyed your weekend. Check him out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Chase Parham. Not even close. And, you know, it's a great point you bring up. And the last time we got to this was probably 2016, right? Back to back access bowls for Ole Miss Ole Miss played on that Monday night against Florida state. They got up 28 to six. I'll never forget a student reporter for Florida state was like, damn, Ole Miss may win the whole thing. I was like, well, that'd be <laughs> sick. Cause you know, I'm 21 years old at a student newspaper not know what I'm doing. I was like, that'd be a pretty cool ride. And then we're state loses to South Alabama to start that year. And are like, Oh my God, this program is leaving them in a the dust. And then between, you know, Tampa hookers Bible verses and some injuries, State ends up beating them 55 to 20 by the end of the year. It's kind of crazy how much that flipped in nine months. It's really remarkable. But this feels different for a lot of reasons, right? And so that's, I guess, to kind of get to the kind of climax of this piece of the discussion. This doesn't happen for Ole Miss a lot. They don't have opportunities to do what they have a realistic opportunity to do. And I just, I don't even know where I necessarily want to go with that next, but it doesn't feel as, Two thousand three felt like a one off, right? But like can you somehow beat LSU in this weird year, or not even a weird year, but weird no, year? No,
2: L- yeah. I mean, I, I was look, I was I was barely in college. I mean, I was a I was a sophomore, and but they in went fourth and next year.
1: I was nine, and still like remember like that would that felt rare. No, I, I guess the so,
2: my point is they felt like you had to maximize Eli's last yeah. year. It wasn't a program; it was Eli's team.
1: And, That's what that was. And while this doesn't feel as rare. It's still the SEC West. It's still a year in, year out gauntlet. Like this, this could, it's, if you looked up in a decade and said 2022 was the best opportunity they had to win the West in the last 20 something years, would you be surprised? Like it just all feels that for the taking, uh, there for the taking for them. You're,
2: you know, okay, probably, but here's the deal. And this is, it's a really interesting discussion that we're not going to know the answer to for a while. But I also look at Ole Miss and assuming Lane stays. Who says Ole Miss isn't just better next year? Jackson Dart's going to be a year older. Quinshawn Judkins is going to be a sophomore. You know, Igman Oson's going to be a sophomore. They've got some studs. They're starting to recruit better. He's going to do a good job on the portal. It looks like Ole Miss is more aligned from an administration to collective standpoint. They've been in a long time. It's, It's a program that is still trending up.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all
3: understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance.
1: Oh, I'm and, 100% with you there. It just – I think we'll get to a point where Auburn and LSU are, are better to kind of stiffen up the West of it, AM. a and I think so.
2: Like, Look, I mean, Brian Kelly, I don't know what to do with him because part of me goes he's going to win because he's won everywhere. And then part of me looks at it and whatever that stat is, Brian Kelly's like 5-19 and 19 in his last 24 against ranked teams. Like, he still – even when he was at Notre Dame, he didn't beat anybody worth the shit. So, like, I don't know what to make of him at this point. Auburn – it's very unlikely they're going to fix it next year. They're going to fire Harson. They're going to have a first-year coach. They're going to have whatever. And then Ole Miss, I guess this is my point. And I don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. I mean, I, I feel like Mike Bianco doing the, hey, I don't know, ask me later when we actually see what happens. Quit actually asking me to project what's going to happen in the future if this made, made sense down the line. But in today's changing world of college football, as long as a team is invested to max its efficiency, who says that head coaches and ability just as programs can't at least short-term elevate you past some of those teams? Who's to say that Ole Miss isn't just a better job than Auburn at this point, as long as Lane is the head coach? Because I don't think Auburn's within 18 months of getting their boosters and all completely in the line, because they never are. They're, They're a shit show.
1: And that's you know, a they, problem. They can with IL. That's a long term problem for yeah. nil.
2: An and now, look, maybe look. Is Auburn's ceiling shown to be much higher than Ole Misses over the years? Sure, sure, it has. There's no doubt about that. I'm not disputing that. Auburn is going to win at football again. They are. I mean, Auburn. <laughs> if you're if you're going, Auburn's going to suck forever. Well, you're wrong. They're going to be good at football again. But the rules of the game are no longer the same. Is the point? No. And, and Ole Miss has been 60 years since they've been where they are right now. Again, I, I get that it's not. It doesn't include a win over Alabama. I get that it hasn't been over an LSU team that was game busters. But they're freaking 17-3. and three. That's really good. I mean, there are literally four teams in the country better than that. That's it. Michigan, Oklahoma State, Georgia, and Alabama. That's it. Ole Miss has the same 20-game record as Ohio State over the last 20 games.
1: And without diving too far into the whole Lane Lee, Lane State thing, we'll save that for December when we're trying not to talk about yeah, the sure. basketball team. but you're about to get a 12 team playoff too. You don't necessarily always have to win the West going forward. And so it almost would have been in
2: the playoff three of the last seven years.
1: That is uh that, I mean, that'll keep your job in the NFL. Like that, 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 that's getting it done. And that's what makes this so fascinating because that's kind of what I wanted to end up as is this year winning the West aside, this feels more built to last to where you got halfway through that 2015 season between the Tunsil stuff. And then what was kind of looming in 16, it was like, I don't know if this is going to last five more years type of thing. Well, no, you spent the whole
2: 15 season going, hey, it'd be really cool if they got there. And if they do, we don't even know if it's going to stick in the record books.
1: Exactly. And you knew like the recruiting in 16 was like, you oh. like, and then obviously that team ended up tuning freeze out. So that's the fascinating part of it. It feels more built to last, but it does feel like they have a unique opportunity here because of some traditional powers down last old Miss thing I wanted to get to before we get to some book stuff and get out of here. I did some uh, digging and by digging, I mean, I pulled up a basic stat sheet from each of the last four years. The defensive turnaround is so remarkable and they haven't been world beaters defensively this year, but they've been really good and really competitive. It is absolutely hilarious to compare this stuff to 2020 or 2018. So I'll just run through it real quick. This is just base level stats. Stuff. What would you guess off the top of your head that they allowed offensively? We'll start with 2018. Uh, What do you think they allowed per game on the ground?
2: On the ground?
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: I don't remember which is which on this, which is funny, because I remember they were terrible at something, and it made it where they didn't have to do the other thing. And I can't remember what the other thing was. But
1: um, let's go 182 yards. They allowed 221 yards on the ground uh, per game in 2018. Uh, Passing, they were at 261 they allowed an average of 36 points per game and 483.4 <laughs> yards. They almost averaged 500 yards given up on, per game. It gets worse, believe it or not, actually. Um, they okay. they gave up 54 touchdowns in 20, uh, 2018. That was, uh, that was peak crime dog McGriff, in case anyone has any sort of trouble remembering that, whether you want to or not. 2019. McIntyre comes in you talk about the best coach Ole Miss defense I wasn't going to interject and throw this in there because it's just really not the same scale McIntyre got their run defense down to 138 yards a game granted they sucked against the pass they had all this pressure in the secondary 268 but they only allowed 426 yards per game and only gave up 39 touchdowns that's not exactly the 85 bears but with not a whole lot of influx of talent on that on the defensive side of the ball That's pretty damn good. I'd say,
2: considering what they had to work with, and the fact that offensively they couldn't hold on to the
1: football. Yeah, that's not terrible. No, it's not. You're right. I didn't even think about that. They were. I mean, McIntyre.
2: He's an underrated coach in the middle of all the things we talk about during this stretch. I mean, you can't even very well. You can't even sniff him in the
1: same conversation as McGriff. No, McGriff was. I mean, McGriff had DNs covering running backs out of the backfield that led to that all time yeah. Dear Shepard quote where he goes, I turned around, I realized I effed up. Um, <laughs> you remember that? That was just absolutely priceless. Here's where it gets weird Did you know 2020? And I know his SEC only season is remarkably worse than any of these.
2: Yeah, it's it's partly because of that, partly because they were they were shitty. Um, there, if I have the stat right, and I think I do, it is the second worst SEC season of all time,
1: outside of Tennessee the same year. They allowed 206 yards per game on the ground, okay, not quite as bad as 18, 312 passing. They averaged 30 say, points a lot a game, and they allowed, in, in 10 games, 50 touchdowns. <laughs> 50. 50. 50 touchdowns. That Again, is not, not SEC games in Indiana, but still. They were – gave up an average of 519 yards of total offense per game. <laughs> they turned that into a 500 record. Yes, they did. And that's the remarkable part about it, because then they started getting a defense, and guess what happened? They won 10 games last year. 2021, they offered they were actually kind of bad against the run. They allowed 190, 230 on the ground. Only gave up 40 touchdowns, 420 yards a game. This year, they're at 138 yards given up per game, or excuse me, 117 um running 228 passing 336 total they have played six games this year and allowed 10 touchdowns i will remind you in a 10 game season in 2020 they gave up 50 that's two years removed Wow. wow two
2: yeah i had no idea it was that bad like none 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 whatsoever
1: I went in expecting 2018 being the worst, but 2020, yeah, they look, COVID year, they didn't really get them. There's a lot of factors that went into that. I'm not necessarily saying the Ole Miss defense in 2020 was demonstrably worse than 2018. It's really just you know comparing two bags of crap if we're being honest. But it, it, there were different circumstances to be fair. But if you just look at how they cut things down in the last, and I I didn't get to have time to do this, but if you just cut it down from the Tennessee game on last year, I bet the, the numbers between the first 12 games of Lane Kiffin's tenure and the last 16 or whatever the total is now is pretty remarkable to look at. And it's, it's a testament to this team because it's not a bunch of recruiting cycles. It's what they've been able to do in the portal and how quickly they've been able to flip the roster. And I feel like that speaks to some part of what we were talking about earlier to where, who says short-term you can't overcome some stuff because you have better coaches and you can flip your roster in the portal quick? It just it was remarkable to put down on paper uh, when you went through the exercise. It's also continuity of knowing where,
2: where you need the help and what that help can look like. Yeah. Like, you don't need an All-American at all 11 spots. It's, hey, where does this guy make sense? Where does this fit in? You know, what, what can Chance Campbell do for me? Jared Ivey. Yeah, to fit. I mean, Troy Brown, I mean, he's kind of a small linebacker that frankly was like a safety or a corner out of high school. You know what I mean? That it's 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 a lot of different stuff there. And then you get to mix it in with Igmanosin. It's where you make a really smart decision on DeAndre Prince. He it's left awesome. the program and came
1: back. The way he I mean, played against Kentucky was unbelievable. I mean, he's turning into a guy – he's basically turned into their guy where like, hey, best playmaker on the other team, that's kind of yours. I don't know – I haven't looked enough in the last two games to know if they've actually started doing that. But they definitely trust him on an island. He's been remarkable, and it seems like he's grown up a lot too. It's, they floated him with Shepard on Saturday. Yeah, it's it's great talent evaluation, and it's it's – I mean, Partridge, I tried to write about this earlier in the year, but didn't quite have enough. Partridge talks about getting to know the kids and getting to know what they're about and actually doing the homework. I think that's why he's pulled so many kids out of the Northeast, which is not exactly a football power. I was watching a Rutgers game on Friday night and they called some kid uh, Igbenison or Igbenoson. I was like, they have to be brothers. I mean, New Jersey, New yeah, Jersey, yeah, yeah, cousins yeah. or something. And like, that's not necessarily known as a football power. And they pulled a ton of talent out of there. And so- I, to your point, like long term, I think there is like would would you be stunned if it's the best chance they had to win the West in the next 10 years? No, because of exactly what we just outlined. But I guess the point is they do have a unique opportunity ahead of them. So it is set up for a fun five or six weeks. This is a hell of a lot better than, you know, what's the path to six wins under Matt Luke and writing about how their bold chances took a huge hit because they lost to Kelly Bryan in Mizzou. Um, on a random October Saturday night. That that wasn't as fun as what we got going on now. Cause they're enjoy- that's the other piece I was telling a buddy of mine who's Old Miss Fan yesterday. Isn't it just nice to have something fun to watch each week? Cause the the long go glute gears just kinda was that fun at all? I know they won a couple games, but that just kind of sucked to watch because it was so predictable. You knew the outcome before the game started. If it was Arkansas or Vandy, okay, they're probably going to win. If it was a moderate opponent, they were probably going to play it closer to three and a half quarters and lose because they couldn't score in the red zone or get stops. Like This is at least a competent product each week, and I don't think that part should go undersold either. Every game is interesting in its own way, and there's a
2: larger picture at play. Even if they lose a game or two, I mean it changes. I mean, Ole Miss Fan's gonna be really frustrated if they go to Baton Rouge and lose that game because that does change what the ceiling is possible, and that does a lot of different things. But just in general, you're just having a better conversation. It's what Lane has changed here. This is about mentality, it's about money, it's it's all these different things. I mean, he's done a he's done such a revolutionary job of because we we saw Freeze and Freeze got them to back to back accesses in fourteen and fifteen, but I don't know, and I, I hate to, maybe it was the probation in fifteen. I'm trying to kind of think through it a little bit because they did sign Shape Patterson and Greg Little, who were top five guys out of high school. Guess what yes, they did
1: sign though, linebackers.
2: Well, no, but yeah, I guess my point. You always had flaws, and in some ways, with Freeze you thought, okay, no, this is at least somewhat sustainable where the ceiling has been raised. Maybe it's not national championship, but they're going to be a quality program. But there was always those flaws, as you mentioned. There was always the, hey, what's the defensive recruiting? Or, hey, they lost that game and probably shouldn't have lost it. Or they did this. Maybe – I hope it's not recency bias, but this feels different. Like, this feels more sustainable and a higher-level product than anything during any point of the freeze standpoint, just from a feel standpoint at this at, at this time.
1: It really does. And so to kind of wrap things, thing, it's going to be an interesting six, seven weeks. I'm really fascinated to see how this turns out. Like I, I, I'm i probably cynical by nature because I started covering this thing in 16 full time. Now I'm doing the part time thing, but like it's the first time it's been interesting. Like this is the first time I felt very interested on a week by week basis about what this team could do in quite a while. And so I'm looking forward to the next six, seven weeks uh, before we get to the book part, when is the last time you have watched a soccer match from start to finish? Oh, good God! Oh, uh, wow! From start to finish, or just watched a soccer game? we we'll, we'll call. Well, they call it matches over there. It's also a pitch, not a field. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Um,
2: there's been some Ole Miss soccer on. On Thursday night at Handraise Guys on like TV Two, that's been on, and I will kind of glance at it during the course of the show if that counts. And this is serious. The last time I have actually watched a complete soccer game, it's probably an Ole Miss soccer game that I covered in like 2006.
4: Okay.
2: It might have been that long. Now, I, let me say this though: I will watch World Cup stuff. So. There's probably some times where I've watched a large portion of some World Cup games, matches, whatever. But I don't know that I sat down at the zero mark and watched to the 90-minute mark nonstop.
1: This has been the fastest-growing segment on American Soil Soccer Corner. Be sure to tune in next week as we break down the EPL. (laughs) Now to the book.
2: You're, you're not even gonna like try to go hey
1: Tottenham yeah I don't know dude Let we just had to this. get in there no I, I was I was I screwed with Borky about that too whenever he comes on because I'm like hey did you catch the Tottenham game he's like no I'm like I right, this has been talking soccer um I don't actually <laughs> watch it myself it ta- started as a joke segment and now we get dudes asking us if we saw what West Ham did I'm like I didn't catch that one you know if I add I don't dislike soccer I actually find the EPL very fascinating like once Weldon started explaining it but if I started adding Sunday morning soccer to the menu of sports MC, would probably just shoot me. She'd be like, what, what's wrong with you, dude? Like you don't know any of these people. It's 7.00 AM. Like what, what's the business on? side of the EPL. Cause it's so different than
2: everything else it's we watch
1: is cool. Um, they, they had a coach that, that got that left one team, seven matches into the season and went to a bigger club uh, to coach the next game. And then they played each other. Oh, it, really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like mafia stuff. It's, 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 it's fascinating to to listen to i don't literally
2: would have been like the browns coach leaving and going to the patriots like three weeks later and they play
1: if they fired harson tomorrow and kiff not to stoke the flames here but kiffin was like god deuces i'm out of here i'm headed to the plains and it was like i will see you in six days i'll be on the other side (laughs) (laughs) it's wild so anyway the uh back to uh more of american sport baseball you did the book is out it's on sale. Where can you buy it? Like what All right. So, Amazon it's in home. we're recording at
2: 4:15 on Sunday afternoon. It okay. is it's been on Amazon for I don't know, 10 days, 12 days, 2 weeks, something like that. Uh, things have gone well there. It is That's getting great. into brick and mortar locations this week. It will be in at Lemuria Books in Jackson sometime probably on the shelves tuesday morning they will have the books tomorrow afternoon but i don't know how quickly they will get that done appreciate everybody who's done pre-ordered signed copies of those they will get mailed out as soon as lemuria can get them in the mail i am signing them right now there's a huge stack of them in front of me and they will be in jackson tomorrow also this week they will be in square books they will be at oxford floral here in oxford as well they will be at Reeds in Tupelo. They will be at Novel in Memphis. And then there's some other stores that are getting orders in and they will be there soon. But those are our initial release of uh, of locations. So we are moving to the next step. We're getting the getting the brick and mortar spots, getting the booksellers their books. And then we're not too far away also from releasing the Kindle ebook edition of the book as well.
1: Okay, that's uh. So I'm curious, just real quick question there. What takes longer with is that just uploading it online and all that? What what takes longer with the Kindle part of it? I've never been like a Kindle reader. Um, like I I just I've honestly I don't know anything about it. Does that take longer for a reason? It's a
2: complete different layout, so we have to change up the way the things laid out in some ways. It has a different page number. The margins are different. It just. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be a different PDF file to be uploaded to the system, or however that works. That's above my pay grade, but whatever that looks like. And then here's the truth too. This is. It's a book about people. It's a book about a story. I hope that people find it fascinating beyond just wanting wanting it strictly because it's an Ole Miss championship book. But it is a commemorative book, so we wanted to make sure that a. An edition that you could hold in your hand and keep and have and put on your shelf was available first before we released the the the, the Kindle at the same time. And I mean, just being completely honest, I I do better financially off the the paperback
1: that I do the the Kindle edition. There you go, get our uh, get our yeah. guy rich. Don't go to Kindle. To hell with that guys. <laughs> um, the, what was the hardest piece part about this? What was the hardest part about writing a book? Because. I know you had never done it before going in. We had talked even, I think maybe before you started writing the book or we're going to write it about like, you know, what would be the hardest part about writing a book now as you are a published author with your name on something that is a book, what, what, what is the most difficult piece? I'm just, I'm curious by that. Uh, Two things. Number
2: one, getting over the mental block that I am writing a book. There is a certain thing of. How do I start? How do I do this? I have no experience. This is a daunting task in a very short period of time. Because I think I told you the backstory on this, and it's in the book and the acknowledgments. And and, again, I could not have done this by myself. I had help on all fronts with getting getting this thing to a finished product. Um, I, I can't imagine having to literally do it alone. You couldn't. There would be errors all throughout that book. Um, but the day that Ole Miss beat Arkansas. When Dylan Delucia threw his game, and I'm in the press box, I send Neil White a text. He's the publisher of Nautilus Publishing here in Oxford. By the way, if you haven't read his book Sanctuary of Outcasts, it's incredible. Fantastic. Brian and I both uh, both both recommend it completely. So you can uh, you can do that. It is it is it is um, it is awesome. But I sent him a text, and I said, um, "Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. Just." Giving you a heads up, would love to talk if it's something you're interested in. And his response back to me was, Well, we don't want to jinx it, so shut up. But if they win, <laughs> text me next week and we'll talk. And he and I had lunch on July 1st. And he said, Look, I'm doing a coffee table book. What you're doing is different than what I'm doing. I think it's a great idea. And we talked through some logistics, there's some paper issues with COVID and all this stuff that nobody really cares about. But he, I'd had multiple people that I really trust say, Hey, this book can work. You can write it. And then when he, from an industry standpoint said, I think that will work. Here's what I think it would look like. There was an extra confidence there that, that really helped me. And I appreciate him for that. And then it was just warp speed because my deadline for all writing was September 5th. So we're talking about a full book in 65 days when you have not done a single interview for the book either. This isn't, look, fiction is much harder in its own right. And I can't write fiction. I'm That's not where my head would be, even though I've tried in the past. But getting new information and new interviews and getting people to open up the way they need to and coordinate logistics and schedules, that was the hardest part. Because then you're also having to write and compile and figure out what goes where. Because, again, I've never written a book before. I've written really long magazine stories. And in my head, what I had to do was I wrote out what I wanted to be chapters. And I said, tell yourself you're writing really long feature stories on all these things. And every chapter is a really long feature story. But, you know, a lot of it's just instinct or what makes sense. Because what's the first word you write? Am I writing the very first chapter? Am I bouncing around? What makes sense? What's going to hook people to be the very first word of the book? I mean, there's certain intimidating things that you just kind of have to do. I mean, you almost sort of treat it like deadline writing. Like when I was in school 20 years ago, Billy Watkins, you know, Billy, he spoke to one of my classes and his piece of advice was when you're on deadline writing, just write something. And in some ways it's, it's, it doesn't make sense, but in some ways it does because if you'll just write something down, Even if you come back to the beginning, you're just going to start flowing and you start writing paragraph three and four and five and six and come back to it. And I think just trusting myself was such a big part of it that A, I could do it and I could do it the way I wanted to do it. But then, two, there is no perfect, there's no exact right way to tell the story. There's no exact chronological way that this makes sense. Just start getting words down on paper. And then, if you got to start moving stuff around, that's completely fine. I I thought, I think. Just getting past that point to myself was a huge part of it to understand that there's no completely right way. Because, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to write the book that was just me taking a bunch of columns and stories that I wrote during the season and put them together in this commemorative thing and write it. I wanted people to read the book and learn new things to have a deeper understanding of the people around it if you're a fan, you know, this baseball team better than you knew this baseball team, or maybe any sports team from Ole Miss that you've covered or, or been around over the last how many years, you've been a fan. That was the goal because there also was the story, you know, I think I told you this when we were on the first time talking about the book is had Tennessee won the title and I covered Tennessee. I was about to say the same. It's 65 and 10 and they yeah. beat the hell out of everybody. There's no story. I mean, There's a cool story on how did Vitello do this because they were bad five years ago and he did this run, but it's, it's not emotional. It's not personal. It's baseball. It's just that you ran through this thing and they put this super team together that everybody hated. And there's probably some funny stories with Tennessee and Auburn throwing bats at each other, but nothing kind of got to, I mean, not to be corny, but there was no heart and soul to that. I mean, this is a story where, a guy who has been around 22 years was being fired if they didn't get really lucky to get into a tournament on whatever day that was. It's on May 1st. They just drive or fly back from Fayetteville with the, where they drive back with two of the coaches having a conversation in the car about what they do getting next. fired. And at that point, hey, how do we just make this not Mike's worst season he's ever had? I mean, that was the goal. You know, it's a team that won the national title that on May 1st, it's top two assistants they're discussing how to go 13 and 17. How do we get to 13 to not be Mike's worst season? I mean, that's that's asinine that that team ends up winning the national title. I mean, I'm talking to Mike in one of my interviews with him, and he goes, God, we only won 42 games. That's hard to do. <laughs> and it is. I mean, it's hard to win the national title only winning 42 games. So you've got – You've got Mike's story of he was out and what do you call his tenure? Is it a success? Is it a failure? What to make of it? Is all the negative stuff around his tenure real? Is it the vocal minority? And I, you know, like, I don't know if we still have that answer because as much as when Mike goes down that road and it's over now, look, lifetime he have to go out, out his own way. But it's a really interesting thing where I'm not the one to just completely discount it because – Mike, I mean, we had this discussion. I, you know he knew I was going to have to ask him these things. I leave the book in Chapter One talking about Keith Carter and Mike's contract and the whole deal. And there's a, he was he was going to be fired. It, it's just the truth. It's what it was. And Mike's argument is, I understand there's people that wanted me out, but you guys don't talk to a lot of the eighty five hundred that are still in the stands over the course of this situation. And, again, I kind of want to roll my eyes at it. And then part of me goes, how do we really know what's a majority or a minority? At the end of the day, it was Keith's decision, and Keith's decision only, and that mattered either way. But I don't know if we'll ever know exactly what the percentage of the fan base was either way on Mike Bianco. It's hard to say. I mean, because there's a segment of people that go, well, I'll still win the games because what else am I doing in the spring? And you guys win and you're fun. But that doesn't mean I – you know, I mean, I I don't know. Because I had a – I mean, I've never – I had a column ready, and this this was just because this is smart business. I mean, this is not because I was cheering for anything or anything else. It's easier on me for Mike to win. I mean, I'd have to get to know any coaching staff, but my column about Mike's firing, if he was going to be fired, was I let it off with I got a buddy of mine who said, "I'm just ready to know if it's a Mike problem or an Ole Miss problem." And I thought that was a really compelling sentence that I had heard from him that stuck in my mind because the point was, is this where Mike can't get us over the hump? Or is this a deal where Ole Miss has a ceiling and Mike's done a hell of a job and we're going to fall off without somebody like Mike Bianco? And there's a certain part of just Groundhog Day nature to this program over the last 15 years where there's a... You know, the the fan base just said, hey, let's just figure this thing out. Let's find out either way what's next or what's on the other side of this rainbow. And instead, Mike showed that not just can you win a title, but you can do it the really freaking hard way on the road, getting hot. I mean, all those sort of things. So my point in all this, and I'm just kind of rambling, is that there was so much here. And I said, I only want to write the book if I feel like I can tell that story. Can Can I get the honesty? Can I get the truth? Will people talk enough? Can I tell that story? Can I tell the hellacious year that T.J. McCants had personally? Which, to his dad's credit, was the best interview I did in the entire book. God bless his family. That It's chapter 17 or 18 in the book. And, I mean, I I got really emotional during the interview and writing that chapter of the book. T.J., he didn't want anybody to know – We Everybody tried to honor his privacy, but he called a lot of hell during a season where he was going through hell. Um, And I needed to tell that story. There was so many things like that. I talked to Kami Bianco at length, just on kind of what the season was like. And it wasn't just a national title. It was a personal accomplishment for the Biancos, for this coaching staff that had been together so long that it had become this just – White hot obsession while still trying to put it in perspective. Mike Bianco took this job in 2000, having been at LSU, where they just won. It's what they did. Yeah. I mean, he never thought it was going to be this hard. He never thought it was going to take this long. He, He's probably sat in bed at night going, am I a success? Am I a failure? What does this look like? You know, it, it's all those different stories. And then it's this team that – just kind of was some misfits in a way. But they played, they were they liked each other more than most teams I cover. They they stayed together when it had been really easy through social media and the losses to just go, you know what the hell with it. And instead they kind of fought. They fought hard. Um, there's just so many different things to this. And then, you know, lastly, and I want to point this out, it's a fan base that has dedicated so much to baseball. They have filled the stadium up, they're talking about money, capital. Like oh. money, but yeah. Yeah, look, because that's the thing. I wrote this during the season, and I put the, this is one of the four things I put in the book that had been previously written. There's four articles from the season that made it into the final copy of the book that I reprinted, and one of them was talking about the, the parade and the celebration at Swayze the couple days after they won the title. And it wasn't a celebration; it was a cleansing because this fan base has been through so much hell and wanted so badly. It was never that anybody thought Mike Bianco was a bad guy or a bad. Guy. It's that they were just so locked in and wanted it so bad that if he couldn't get them there, they wanted to try somebody else. That's all this was. It was – in in some dumb way, it's a credit to what he built because he built and won the games that put them into this spot to want this so damn badly. So when they win it, I mean, you're seeing emotion and tears that goes beyond just my team won and I'm choked up. It's decades' worth of season tickets and travel and sweat equity and. Losing from, you know, Evan Button to 2014 finishing third to all the Black Monday of 2018, it's all that stuff wrapped into one where finally it goes and it goes away. And now, look, I'm sure people get really pissed when they lose a series in March. But for the first time in a long time, Ole Miss is just a normal baseball program. And that is a great thing for the fan base.
1: That hasn't happened since like 15 or 16, fresh off the other Omaha appearance. Where it's like, all right, this team's not that good. But, yeah, you hit on a ton of stuff there. The first piece of it, you beat me too. It was like, yeah, you could do the reprinted game stories thing, but that would have just been a complete disservice to what the team was because it wasn't like Vanderbilt winning when they went – you know, 55 and nine or whatever. It's like, well, they won because they had David Price or whomever. Like it's, there was a lot more to this team as you just outlined there. And so like, that was another piece of it I thought was fascinating. And then you're right. It was a validation. I like the cleansing aspect of it. Maybe they could have like sacrificed a goat with the Tennessee tech jersey on and had <laughs> of them stab it out there at the mound. I don't know. Or right field, whatever that kid came in. and.
2: Well, it, it, look, look, it's the hardest part of writing the book because in my head i, I want how I, I wanted it to be long enough to be a book and and for people to have some
1: weight did you have any about constraints it. that's what i was going to ask did you have any sort of like uh like page number words i don't know how that works is there any constraints about you cuz that's the part that i hate i have to, i can make stories too long and i can cut them down but don't tell me that beforehand Like, that's just kind of screw with my head, if that makes sense. There was a minimum and a sort of kind of
2: maximum of, hey, if you go over this, there better be a really good reason. Okay, that makes sense. It wasn't a clear no, but it was just, hey, here's kind of what this book did. and The one thing that I did change, and this was at the recommendation of people who know this industry far better than I do, is that I went with a six by nine book instead of a five by eight book, like inches. I went with a little bigger book, which I thought was a better reading experience, just holding it. Like I held both sides books and flipped through them. And I felt like for the type of book, it was six by nine made sense, but six by nine also cut the page, the page count. So when people go, Hey, how many pages is the book? It's like, well, it's whatever it is, but had I printed it on a same size book as what you people are mostly accustomed to. It would have been 50 more pages or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like it, it cut pages because I have a bigger book. Um, so I guess that's that's my point. Is I had to balance those things. Is hey, am I better off with more pages because that looks like a more substantial story, or am I simply going with the reader experience? And when I think a better book, a bigger book is a better reading experience. Am I going to focus on that even though the page count is going to be a little lower? Um, I worried about page number. I mean, uh, word count. At one point, I thought, hey, I don't know that I have enough. Um, but then more stories came and I sort of started writing and realizing that there was so much around Omaha that I was okay. If I just kind of kept with the process, what I was saying is it's so hard to know. This is my biggest writing hangup was enough background. So somebody understands why this season was so critical, but not so much background that everybody gets bogged down and bored before we ever get to the year. Right. And that was the number one issue I had was Because somebody from an outside perspective, Ole Miss has won a ton of games. They've been to Super Regionals in 19 and 21 and had the best record in the country or whatever in 20 when COVID happened. In 18, they were a national seed, and they had Black Monday, but they still had a really good regular season. Your guy from Dubuque, Iowa, as we always talk about, he probably looks at it and goes, hold on, they were firing that guy? Why? They're good. There's no problem. Like, you guys are crazy. Why is this year a big deal? If they don't get in, fine. You'll just do next year. So, you got to find a way to explain why everybody had the opinion they did right now to why this was this make or break year and this is what mattered. And you've got to get really emotionally invested in this year. And it couldn't be because the interview with LSU, because frankly, that left everybody's mind for what reason, one reason or another, that wasn't something that pertained to the entire year of everybody being mad. I mean, it was some extra scar tissue but it didn't change a lot. So I couldn't even focus on that. So so much of it was, hey, Ole Miss was this for a long time. Here's what Mike had done. And then how do I get the reader from 2001 to 2022 and believing and investing on 2022 being this make or break year that it was? How do we do that? And that was was probably the hardest writing assignment of the entire book was a how to do that and then b how much of just mike's background in general matters for us to get here because it's it's a book on almost baseball and their 2022 season but the b storyline is it's in some ways a, a mike bianco biography
1: yeah absolutely and the last thing i had on this is how hard is it to wake up every day and just pick out i have to do this because the thing i struggle with now particularly when I'm in a position where it's part-time, I can write about everything I want to write about. I struggle to just do the newsletter after Tulsa because it's like, what do we actually learn? Not really. But you realize people still want that sort of information. I know a book's different, but like I now can just put it off and be like, I don't want to do this like type of thing. And I struggle to just be like, actually, this is fine. Not everything has to be some sort of Picasso masterpiece. And I've tried to struggle with that as well. How often was it on day 25 of writing to be like, I know I'm not necessarily feeling it today. This doesn't feel like it's great, but I have to keep doing this. And I know, because always on the back end, you're like, actually, that is good work. Like, but it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Did you struggle with that at all? Because I feel like writing a book, I'd be like, I can't, I'm not feeling it today. Well, you don't really have that option after a while. You got to get this done.
2: The middle of the process was my best writing.
1: Early on,
2: I didn't have a feel for how to write. Yeah, the middle. Because at the beginning, I didn't have a feel for how to write a book. I didn't really understand to what level I needed adjectives and that extra sentence and really outlining the scene because I've got as many words as I want. So you don't want to use too many words, but I can take the time to really flesh this out and let it be what it needs to be. So it took a little bit to get into a rhythm. And then in the middle, I thought I did really strong work. And then there toward the end, for two different reasons, I thought that it got a little weak. I had to really go back and fix some things and change some things toward the end. A, because I was just freaking tired. I and was done. Is, though,
1: it's not actually weak. It's just mostly how you perceive it because it's such a long, arduous process is kind of what I was getting at, right? It is, but it's two things. It's A, I am
2: legitimately tired. I'm making more mistakes. But then two, and I don't know if this is right or wrong. There were two chapters that I found to be the hardest chapters of the book and the most boring. And I saved them for the very end because I just didn't want to write them. I wasn't sure exactly what would be in them. And I said, God, I just don't want to do it. So let me write the stuff I kind of want to do. And those two chapters, I mean, I was telling everybody what they were. The last two things I wrote, it was chapter three and four. And it's the first part of the 2022 season when they are beating all the non-conference teams. And then it's how do you get to the losing streak, or at least the losing streak until Mississippi State. It's how do you get through South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, those weekends. What is the story there? Because you have to – look, they have to get the fall to get the rise. You've got to give everybody how they got really bad into the bottom of the league, but you also can't spend 20,000 words on that. Nobody just wants to read how their team is losing over and over and over and over again. So what does that look like? And I use some of those words for setting the scene for 2022. Um, Even talking about media day and some of the quotes, because Mike was asked directly, is this an Omaha team? And I kind of built off, I built off that a little bit. And then, you know, I went ahead and told the Dylan Delusia story going into Kentucky and set up that, you know, Delusha is only here, maybe because Reagan Burford is only here. I mean, like Burford was one of the reasons why Delusia ended up at the end and the crazy story of that. I mean, Mike at the end of the fall identified seven pitchers who were potential weekday start weekend starters in February. And Dylan Delusia was not one of the seven. And then he was the college world series most outstanding player as a starting pitcher.
1: And then Hunter point, Elliott he abandoned the concept of starting pitching, the most traditional coach of all time. Yes. When they got to that point, which was just like, I hey, we're done with this starter thing at the sake of pissing Delusia off, <laughs> exactly. who
2: admitted it in the book because Delusia throws the six innings or whatever against Alabama and then. I mean, not of Alabama, against Kentucky. Oh. And then Alabama weekend, he doesn't start because Alabama has splits that show they're better off pitting against left handers,
1: which he wanted, like, which is why he wanted to go with Elliott, who ended up being the second best starter in the Unsung hero <laughs> to team. And then the week later, because South Carolina is the other way, he doesn't
2: pitch Hunter Elliott the entire weekend. I forgot. Hunter Elliott that. against South Carolina did not pitch. I mean, <laughs> to Mike's credit, he deadpaned and he goes, yeah, that was stupid. I was like, yeah, fair enough. Like that was that was dumb. I mean, so I guess that's the point is there was stuff day-to-day minutiae that is pretty interesting. I mean, there's stuff that's really, really fascinating. And the goal was for every chapter to have at least one or multiples of those stories. I mean, there's a snippet, again, I'm not really giving everything away, but like there's a snippet the state series where they're having to watch those those actual losses, they're dumb fireworks. When Mississippi State beats you on that Friday night, and you're whatever you are in the league, and you're scuffling, and you haven't won the second game of the series all year in league play, and two of the players, Mike, Mike didn't go out with them. Mike stayed in the dugout and basically said, "Hey, y'all, go watch the fireworks without you. I'll be without me. I'll be out there in a minute." He's mad at him or whatever, and two players started to get up and leave before Mike got out there. And a couple of the captains were like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. You don't realize the absolute sack of hell that that's going to be if you get up. But it showed that, no, there was some fraying there. Like, there was problems. It was not – I mean, that's where the captains and Tim and Justin and Kevin and Chatagnier and those guys had to really dig deep to kind of keep everybody together. That's the day Riley Maddox got hurt, who at that point was kind of, you know, the more impressive of their freshman bullpen arms. There was just stuff there. I mean, from a handling everything to, you know, the emergence of Josh Mallett's where Chris Godoris, their analytics guru, he figured out, and I, I, again, I don't have the book in front of me. This is in the book, by the book. You can read all this stuff in greater detail. But they realized that Josh Mallett's, his opposing batting average was like 110 if he threw sliders at least 79 miles an hour his opposing batting average was like 350 if they were less than 79 miles an hour. And they realized, Hey, just throw the thing harder and you're unhittable. That's the change they made between last year and this year on Josh Mallets is just throw it harder and little bitty things where they just figured stuff out and all these pieces fell in place. It's a large roster. It's a long season, trusting myself enough to just gather as many of those things as I could find. And, know that when you got done, there would be a book that would be hopefully worth reading at the end of it.
1: Last, last thing, how open was Mike to it? Because there would be some people that would be like, hey, Mike, I'm writing a book. And he'd be like, what do you mean, what is a book? Um, Like how open was he to this entire concept and and, and, and what did he think of the entire thing? Because, you know, Mike's bad about trying to control – I won't say control the narrative, but try to shape your story for you, and then almost answer your question in a way that he thinks you're asking it. What I feel like you can't do that in a book. What was what was his reaction to this? Well, you
2: know, and I don't. I've known him for a long time. I don't even mean this in some whatever way. I mean, Mike and I are not friends. We don't know each other on some crazy personal level. We don't have dinner. But as much as he probably can do this with a writer, I do think he trusts me. Like he knows me well enough that. I mean, I don't know that he's overly chummy with anybody, but I'm probably as much his guy in quotes as there has been on the beat over the, over the course of a long time. So I do think he thought that I would not do anything to screw him. And what I mean by that, I, I don't even mean helping him out. I mean, and I understand this in a way because to set this scene, and we're probably going way longer than you mean to, but the point is when I had my first conversation with Mike, um, and I didn't really give him a choice about the book. I said, Hey, I sent him a text. I was like, Hey, I know you're leaving for the Netherlands in a day or two, but I'm writing a book. And when you get back, I need you for like four hours. So just put it on your calendar. I'll come see you and let's move from there. And I think he said, okay, or something or whatever. But when I sat down with him, he was really tired. He had just done all the Omaha stuff. He had gone to the Netherlands with Team USA. He was jet lagged. He'd been back like 48 hours. And he was having a hard time sort of articulating. Like he was stumbling over some words. He couldn't remember a lot of stuff. And his point to me wasn't, hey, protect me or anything like that. It's, hey, if something doesn't make sense, ask me on another day when I've slept a little more. Like, let's let's get to the bottom of it. Let's really try to dig. But let's do it over time, if necessary, where I'm not just getting the quote that is the more inflammatory quote and stopping right. there if I know it it's not sense. what he meant. Um, Because the second time I met with him, he had like a binder and he was ready to go and had all the stats and he was refreshed. He was awesome. Um, I don't know that I got as much as I would have liked on some of – I got enough and it's in there. And I talked to people around Mike where I told the whole story. Mike didn't want to go into details on just exactly how hard the year was on him personally. But I could get that from some other places. You know, he was defending himself in some ways, which was more than good. I mean, there was no problem with that. But overall, I, I thought he was good. I mean, I would give him I would give him a B, B plus, um, for, for how he handled the book and for really trying to get me what I needed. I mean, it's a it's a non, it's a throwaway story, but I had asked him, I said, I know you had a sandwich. After y'all wanted the college world series, like Cami went out to dinner with her family who was in town. And then I know that you had a sandwich just in your hotel room. I said, Did you go to like Firehouse? What was it? And he goes, No, actually, funny story about that. He said, All the players had gone out and I was hungry. And I realized that we had catered food for the team that they weren't eating. So I just went down to the second floor, like in our team room where there was a huge pile of sandwiches and I got he said an Italian or a Turkey or whatever it was. He's like, I got that. I came back up. There were two bottles of, I think Mayomi wine, a red wine. left. so I opened one of those because he didn't, because I said, you didn't bring one from home. That was better. And he was too superstitious to like have the good wine pack just in That's case they rent. won. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't have the good stuff. So he had like a $14 bottle of wine waiting on him with the sandwich. And, he couldn't remember where it was from so he calls the ops guy into the room and he's like hey i need you to go back through the notes and figure out where we got that catered from <laughs> that day and what the sandwich it was and- yeah yeah like you know Slavic was like oh god of all things i have to do today but i mean mike's like yelling him down the hall he's like hey we're writing the book let's go get with <laughs> it like let's just figure it out like he was fine i mean it was and he, and he took responsibility i mean mike goes you know look i didn't you know, we weren't doing a good job at 7-14. and 14. We knew we were in trouble because I'm starting getting texts going, I'm praying for you. And you go, oh, shit, that ain't good. Yeah, it's never like, something's out there somewhere. I mean, you got that going on. He didn't start Delusia. He didn't start Elliot. He admitted that was dumb. I mean, he goes, yeah, I'd love, I definitely should have started doing Delusia on February the 18th. Because, it, look, it's in the book. Give the assistants credit, too. Clem and Laugh are great. They pull no punches. I mean, because it's sort of a – it's a minor sto- – not a minor storyline, but it's a simmering thing in the book that Carl scouting on Delucia coming in was he's a crappy inner squad pitcher. He's not good at the bullpen. So just hand him the ball and let him start and let him work it out. That's what everybody had told laugh. Well, Mike wanted to see it for himself. So when Dylan sucked in the inner squad, Mike goes, Well, you're not starting. And it's like, Well, but that's not what I mean, that's not what he does. Just let him, you know, let him go. But, and I understand both sides. I mean, I'm not even necessarily criticizing Mike on that, but there's so many elements to it that could have gone wrong, frankly, could have gone better where they didn't get to the bottom like they did. I mean, if he just starts Hunter Elliott and Dylan DeLucia at the end of the year, they're not 7 14 on May 1st.
1: They're not. No, they're not even close. So, uh, yeah, Mike. I never figure you get the like the how hard it was on Mike personally. Like, Sush one time told me Mike's like peeling back an onion. I'm like, dude, that guy's like peeling back a diamond. It's just not even possible. You're not getting the inside story of that. But
2: you talk to the, but you talk to the assistants. You talk to Tammy, yeah,
1: exactly.
2: You know, I talked to Robin Hill who's one of the Bianco's best friends, the Oxford mayor. I mean, you know, you can get stuff from different places that that. Oh, you know, when you put them all together, you hope the story
1: gets told in totality. Check it out. Resilient Rebels, Old Mrs. Remarkable Path to a National Title. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon, coming to bookstores soon. I appreciate the time. I uh, Do I get an advanced pop- copy or do I have to just buy it like every other schmuck at Barnes and Noble? Like, you going to upcharge me? What's the deal here? I can hand you one whenever I see you or whenever you're around. I'm staring
2: at, again, literally like 200 of them. So, yeah, we can spare one whatever. As, as long as you say nice things, you can have as many as you want.
1: Yes, give me a box and I'll upcharge folks for them and make a little profit. So it's like the
2: thing on Amazon where it's like, hey, just give it five stars. And I don't give one damn what you actually say.
1: We like, can say anything you want. Just give it five stars. Solid deal. I appreciate it. I can't wait to dive into it and uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good, bud. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I really appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day. Uh, as Ole Miss gets to 6-0, and oh, and sets up for a really entertaining back half of the season. I'm fired up for it. We'll have Weldon in the midweek, Greg's picks on Friday, probably talk to Buchanan as well, and get some uh, Auburn perspective while we're at it. Looking forward to it. Love doing this podcast as always, and uh, I'm fired up for the back half of the season. Y'all have a great start to your week. We'll catch you on Wednesday.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.